0: Previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast.
1: If you drove through to Ohio, we should have a sign right next to Welcome to Ohio that says there's always next
0: year. From Delaware, almost live, this is a Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 35 of the Sports Refuge the interview show where guests discuss their connection with sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. This episode's guest, John Easterbrook, has had his interest in radio begin with aspirations of being the play-by-play announcer for his beloved Pittsburgh Pirates. Those dreams ultimately led him to a career doing play-by-play for Salisbury University football, as well as working on the Ripken Baseball Show on XM Radio, before ultimately becoming a sports reporter at WTOP-FM in Washington, D.C. In this episode, Easterbrook discusses his career in radio, including what it was like working the now-obsolete overnight shift, as well as what goes into doing live play-by-play. Easterbrook also shares how he came up with his on-air name, Jay Brooks, and how he got the acting bug, allowing him to make appearances on shows such as House of Cards and Veep. And now, here's my interview with John Easterbrook. John Easterbrook is someone I first met when I got my first... Full on air part time job in radio working for Delmaver Broadcasting. He did a lot of stuff. He was on Max 92.5. Uh, that's such a long time ago. And he was also doing a lot of stuff for Salisbury University football along with someone we both know, Bill Reddish. And I'm glad to have you on the air, John. Of course, He also goes by Jay Brooks for those people who are listening to WTOP in Washington, D.C., and who were listening to him on Max 92.5 down in Salisbury, Maryland. How are you today, John?
1: I'm doing good uh, as uh, someone I call the Earl of Salisbury. Uh, I can't believe that it's uh, been technically, I'm thinking, 15 years since we've met.
0: Yeah, I know it's crazy. It feels like a lot of the people, especially I've had on the show, I've I've known a lot of them for upwards of as much as maybe at least 25 plus years because I went to school with them or people I went to college with. So that's almost 20 years. And then people I've started interacting with in my professional career, starting with the radio station there. Yeah, about 15 years. I know that's a long winded answer, but yeah, it, it's crazy how quick time flies.
1: It sure is. Um, I actually, just a um, couple days ago was the 10th anniversary of losing Captain Jim of course, who was the uh, analyst for Salisbury University football on WICO. Uh, and I couldn't believe it's been 10 years since we lost the, the captain. Coming to Salisbury, Earl, was, you know, just a, a dream come true as uh, Joe Edwards, the program director, uh, heard of um, a format up in Pennsylvania, the River WRVV, And um, he saw that on my resume. I It was very vague on allaccess.com. I clicked on it, and I ended up, landing in Salisbury in uh, April of 2004. Met you soon afterwards, and it was funny. Once we started doing the football broadcast, it almost reminds me of us, you and I, trying to connect because, if you remember back in the day, it always seemed that we always had some connectivity issue in trying to get to the game and get to the game on time. So uh, it's funny how even 15 years later we're still having issues with trying to get connected.
0: Yeah, sometimes we'd have the phone line, or call in, especially on the road games, and in other days it'd be clear and free with the Marty unless somebody tripped on the cord and unplugged it, which I remember one time happened. I, when I think of radio, I always think it's a very technically sensitive field. I always feel like anything can go wrong, and sometimes it does, especially with oh, so many pieces of equipment that are involved.
1: all the time it seems Uh, one of the things I'm always remembering is if that on air light is on you you know not to swear not to do anything uh, naughty or get you caught or anything like that you know you're going to have problems in radio all the time it happens Uh, calling the engineer at the middle of the night for something is uh, you know it, it, it goes along with being in broadcasting but always a lot of fun doing the Salisbury games and can you believe it or not uh, my 16th season is coming up this fall. Uh, we actually now have a network uh, carrying the game, Sports.net, and locally on 94.9, which is now uh, KHI. Uh, good signal over in the Ocean City area, but more importantly, being able to stream our games uh, with a network taking care of what you used to do, Earl, for the broadcast and, and, and producing the games. My current analyst, Phil Martin, uh, and I are now actually able to call the game and not have to worry about the uh, uh, the feed dropping or you know keep talking while I'm trying to connect and you know the frustrations of uh, small market radio in Division Three football, which a lot of programs do not have. So 16 years later, at least this will be the second full year coming up. Hopefully, knock wood, that there'll be no major glitches and we can uh, have another successful season of Salisbury University football.
0: What was the transition like going from – I know you did a lot of sideline stuff eventually before coming up and doing play-by-play. What was the biggest difference between those two roles and during the live production of a game?
1: I learned so much from watching Bill Reddish. I mean, uh, Bill uh, was on WICO AM. I was on Max 92.5. I believe the call letters, Earl, were WXMD um, and 92.5. And uh, we used to go out and have cigarettes uh, outside and have a smoke break. While well, I had a long song going on, or he had some programming going on, and we struck up a conversation, and uh, he told me that he learned play-by-play from, uh, I believe, his father, uh, basketball. And uh, that's where he got his chops in doing play-by-play. And I always wanted to be a play-by-play guy. I wanted to be a play-by-play guy for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I grew up listening to Lanny for Terry in the uh, 70s and 80s, and um, I wanted to be the voice of the Pirates. Um, I'll be honest with you now, working... As much as I do in radio, I can't imagine doing 162 games plus pre- and post-games with on the road and all these conditions from seeing it and working on the baseball channel at XM, etc. cetera, that uh, doing the uh, Salisbury games of just uh, over roughly 80 days and getting about 10 games to 11, maybe sometimes 12 games in a season has been really rewarding. And through Bill, the expertise from Captain Jim, being on the sideline, Gary Schofield, learning from him as well, and being able to take all that, put it together, and then I believe it was the 2012 season I actually was the play-by-play guy. Uh, Ad Christopher Newport was the first game that I got to really call my own, and it was the best. I always say that play-by-play is the most rewarding aspect of broadcasting, at least to myself and a lot of my colleagues, that will say to be able to paint a picture to somebody who uh, – Can't see what's going on. It's an art, and it's been a privilege to do it now for these last few years. But uh, I guess always wanting to do it made me want to do it as best as I possibly could under all those adverse conditions where if I were to ever get a call from the four-letter and I'd have a producer and someone in my ear and a stats guy and somebody telling me when to do this and that, I think I would really do excellent because you don't have those other worries but I was able to use all those issues and duct tape and the line dropping and weather conditions and what have you, which have helped me, I think, get a little bit better as the seasons have gone on.
0: I always thought, especially when it comes to play by play, you have to be quick and on the fly because you can't really stumble or stammer. And you have to be eloquent, too, when, while you're doing all of that. I feel like. It's not for someone who just thinks, oh, I can do this, and it's not for the faint of heart. you got to be ready, and you've got to be quick with the tongue and quick with the wit.
1: i got to say that the experience in that department, Earl, is my first full-time gig was at Warm 103 up in York, Pennsylvania. Uh, at the time, Susquehanna Graph owned them. I believe Cumulus might have them now, but did four and a half years of overnight, six nights a week, uh, midnight to six. You learn to fill time. And try to stay awake, and keep people that are trying to stay awake entertained and interested in what you're saying. And I think through that experience, um, it really helped me to be able to just keep talking and talking. And and if you got to give the score over and over again and what have you, you listen to a broadcast now and you can never hear the score enough. And I remember Bill, I think it was Bill Reddish, telling me you can never say the score enough times. So. Do that. I also uh, can be quite corny on the air as well, and uh, I believe you should have fun. There is entertainment in the broadcast. I also know when there's serious moments where, you know, there's a player hurt or uh, something going on, and, and you really have to change the tones. But that's something, again, that you've learned through the news that I've done, music, and and then my current role as a sports uh, reporter and anchor at WTOP. But 1103, really, the overnights, uh, it's, a, it's a place that uh, – uh, a lot of knowledge when everybody else is sleeping. And it uh, coincidentally is the place where I got my air uh, name, uh, Jay Brooks.
0: I feel like overnights now, that's something that's a lost art because now there's automated content. There's, of course, West Coast feeds and satellites and things like that. You really don't think of a lot of stations that do overnights. I even used to think of some of the stations that would shut off come sundown. And it's just amazing to actually find a real live person who's local who's doing something overnight.
1: I actually lost my position at that uh, company because of automation. My current gig now at WTOP in Washington, D.C., there is a a live overnight. I mean, we're live 24-7. Some of the aspects of the broadcast, of course, are recorded from earlier in the day. But uh, for the most part, a good friend of mine, uh, Dean Lane, he's been doing it for 20-plus years, of coming in and making sure that from midnight to 5 a.m., the news stays on, and uh, to have a live person in there, and he mixes it in with some musical drops in between. And out, the, all referencing the overnight, the night shift, when it's summer, summer breeze, when it's uh, you know, kind of keeping you aware of the overnight. That uh, you know, a lot of people just are nine to five, Monday through Friday, but they don't realize that there are people working shift work. You know, Monday through Friday, and, and Saturday and Sunday, and, and all hours of the night. But you're right. There is less and less chances for somebody to uh, work the graveyard shift. But it takes like a certain knack. You know, you're sleeping during the day to work at night and nobody except for maybe a vampire understands your schedule.
0: I always thought about radio. It's sort of being like a bit of a nomadic lifestyle, especially moving from town to town. Maybe just going by the whole WKRP thing, seeing people who are Mm -hmm. journeyman radio people going from place to place, not staying there and and settling down too long. Is that something that seems to still be as viable as it was back then? Or is it, I guess, a little more uh, stable?
1: It's a great one because I moved around quite a bit earlier in my career, mainly trying to, you know, I started out uh, producing a a board op, as they called them. And then I finally got a part-time job where I would uh, be an announcer in between songs, part-time. And you're looking for a bigger market, more money, of course, more hours, more exposure. And and so it's not uncommon to have a resume that you look on there. And mine, I mean, if you look at my resume, I have to make the font so small to be able to fit everything on one page. Only certain people that are in broadcasting would understand and look at it and go, okay, he's got a lot of experience somebody who isn't in broadcasting might look at it and say, this guy can't can't keep a steady job. Um, but there's always a joke too in radio not to buy a house because you could end up moving to another market. You could get fired if a format change or uh, something happens on the air or the boss doesn't like you or whatever happens. So renting has been a mainstay for most broadcasters, including myself. But I met my wife up in Pennsylvania. One of the things that solidified us as a couple were that she wanted to get out of the Lancaster County area and move around. And I had worked in central Pennsylvania almost at every possible station. So I was prepared to move around and wanted to. And to this day, I'm still renting in an apartment um, in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm close to uh, the metro when it's working. Very quaint neighborhood, safe, very nice, very comfortable. But I also understand, Earl, that if uh, that other job or gig or something comes up where we got to pick up and go, We've had the conversation where it's like, okay, let's go. We don't have the ties that most people have, and that's kind of the gamble and, and the things you give up if you want to follow this career. You go where the work is. And and in this regard, I'm in a top 10 market, number 7 in the nation, at the top building station in the, in the nation that has just won its third consecutive Edward R. Murrow Award, which is basically the Oscar of radio. To get three of those in a row and work at a station that I'm at right now doing sports is uh, a dream come true for many. But if there was another opportunity that would cater to my fancy, I might be interested in going to California. I've always said I could do New York City. I'll go where I am wanted and where I think I can take my talents you know, to a, a wider audience.
0: I always thought that was something that was really interesting is especially the days before companies consolidated all the radio stations, some of the places would be very quirky, small little locations where the studio would be. Like, I can think of some places in Salisbury where before all the mergers and things like that, before Clear Channel and all the other companies started merging, all the radio stations were in different parts of town or even outside of town. I remember OC 104 was in a small place and. And, uh, oh, I can't think. I was going to say Bishopville, but it's not that. It's a small place in Worcester County. I remember some of the other stations used to be in Winter Place Park where old Q105 used to be. And it's just so unique seeing that all these tiny little places are where the radio stations were.
1: My first one, Earl, was in a town called Washington Borough, Pennsylvania, which was, uh, if you stood outside of it, which was a trailer and looked across the Susquehanna River, you could see uh, the Turkey Hill ice cream factory where actually a good friend of mine still works we were in a trailer, it was a WNZT uh, AM news talk, We ran. my first job was running the board for the Rush Limbaugh show which is an adventure in itself because he would never take his breaks when he was supposed to which always then basically kept you on your toes as a broadcaster but I remember also one of the duties of board hopping there was cleaning the bathroom And it was no, everybody did it. There was a bucket, there was Clorox, there were rubber gloves, the whole nine yards. So at least it was civilized. But I'll never forget to this day that in front of the commode, in the floor, there was a hole about the size of a bowling ball. Who knows if a bowling ball made the hole? But there were actually weeds that grew up from the grass outside through the floor. And part of the job, too, and in that bucket was uh, some clippers to clip them down so that they were cut short. So they didn't come up and uh, you know come up right between your knees if you were you know uh, sitting down. Um, so uh, that place uh, w- was kind of probably the quirkiest one that I've ever worked at. And now I'm working an 11 million dollar refurbished fifth floor uh, building in Chevy Chase, Maryland, with uh, state of the art equipment that uh, would put anything WNZT to shame.
0: One of the biggest things I, I thought, and I always go back to something Bill always said when I was in his class at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, where music radio is more of a young disc jockey's game as opposed to an older man's game. Then you go to the news talk, sports, and things like that. Do you feel that's something that maybe is more true now, especially music is more for the younger personality to do it, or...?
1: It seems to be what I've noticed um, there are a few exceptions but I think the rule is that I have uh, kind of gotten away from the music and that's what I I started in news and then I went to music and then I'm in sports but I've also had a hand in, a, in all three of them over the past 25 years of my career and um, I think you're right it seems that everybody is more social media savvy they know the trends. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's the regular radio station playing songs at request. Now it's Spotify or any other kind of Twitter. If you can get the disc jockey or the program director's ear to have your stuff played, then you know, it's totally different than it used to be where the record companies would come and try to get their clients airplay as much as possible. And uh, so I think it is, but it, it also is a great learning uh, experience um, because of timing things out. You're given X amount of songs and uh, commercials to pay the bills for the most part. You add in the promos, the bumpers, the speaking and everything, and you only have so many hours in a day. So I think what it does is it helps you talk up a song where maybe the lyrics don't talk us, start of the song maybe 23 seconds before that. Well, do you have a 21 or 22-second spiel that can get what you need to get out before that song hits? Do you have songs that start with lyrics two seconds in where, you know... Uh, Does it fade out with lyrics? Is it a hard stop? You know, whatever, these little things that you don't think about, you perfect these doing the music as you're younger. And I think then later on in your career where you're back timing, as you well are aware of, especially in AM radio, you had to back time to be able to have that one minute spot air one minute before the top of the hour. So at the top of the hour, you could hit the ID and stay legal and everything else. So I would say the music. I, I miss it at times. Uh, I see guys that uh, friends of mine from Sirius XM satellite radio, uh, Flash Phelps on the '60s on Six. He's been doing, you know, music for basically his entire career. That's what he wants to do, and hats off to him. I wanted to do play by play. I also want to be a cartoon voice before everything's said and done, and um, I also wanted to be a disc jockey near the beach and uh, let my hair grow and. Again, WXMD, Max 92.5, you know, again, where we met was my opportunity to do that. And I was still relatively a young man at the time for, for that. So roundabout and gas baggery answer for you, Earl, I think if anybody can work even doing a afternoon shift in radio and they have fun at it, hats off to them because that's what it basically all comes down to. We have fun being on the radio. doesn't pay that great, but... Why not do something that you enjoy because life is short?
0: Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And I just go back to what you were talking about, how you started out. I remember when I first started out working in radio in college, initially I worked at a Clear Channel in Salisbury, and I didn't even touch or sniff a microphone. So I was just working the board there. And then after maybe being there for a few months, I got let go. But, you know, one thing you always learn is you learn from your experience. And then I moved on to Delmarfer Broadcasting, especially thanks to Bill. And there I had a little more experience running the board, doing a halftime show for Salisbury University football, doing some uh, on-air stuff for Cap Country on Saturday nights and sometimes Sunday afternoons, depending on when the race wasn't going on. And then <laughs> I feel like after leaving that for 10 years to try to do a full-time job in print media, which because the schedules didn't work out as well. I got back into it almost about a year ago, uh, July 2018. And yeah, I've been doing that part-time as well. And there I'm doing a lot more working for iHeart now. And it's a man of many hats. Initially, I was just doing some commercials and then I was doing, you know, running some live remotes. And then I was running the board for some NASCAR races, running the board for Delaware women's basketball and sometimes Delaware men's basketball. Now i got a weekend public affairs show, a Sunday night airship, which is normally voice tracked, which is something we'll get into a little bit later as well. Mm-hmm. And everything else. I, I feel like now I'm doing a lot more. And I, I think the me from 15 years ago at 21 would have loved doing all this stuff at 36. Now I'm like, is there enough time to do everything?
1: <laughs> there isn't, but look at all that experience that you've gained over the years that have helped you now do what you're doing now. I get into radio a little bit later than I wanted to. I was uh, fortunate to work at United Parcel Service and make it into their management uh, program. And the tools that I learned at UPS helped me many a year later when I became a boss at Sirius XM Radio. And it seems that you're given a toolbox when you get into this crazy career called broadcasting and Every stop and every person you meet, you throw something into this toolbox, and, you know, lo and behold, you're going to need something from that toolbox at some point of your career, one way or another. I always uh, joke that my BS is in BS, that I can uh, keep the needle moving. Well, now the VU meter is electronic, but I can keep sound going on during a broadcast. I learned how to do it, how to... uh, Not try to be as redundant. Try to be as interesting as possible. Paint the picture as best as you can. Respect the listener. Try to be a mind reader. And then when you get that angry phone call saying why didn't you say something when you know that you just said it to keep that listener listening to you after you have tried to correct them but you also, the customer is always correct. Again, you learn those things. Your your sales come into play. So I think Every broadcaster kind of needs to maybe work at these smaller markets and work themselves up to a bigger market. I was fortunate enough to be heard nationally, always a dream of mine as well. Didn't think that that would happen, but thanks to XM and Sirius XM, I was able to do that. I did notice, Earl, and this is something that's interesting. Some of the people that are born in bigger areas that are from this area in Northern Virginia, near DC and Maryland, where I'm at, they're coming right to a big market right away. And they don't quite understand the sacrifices of having to work holidays, nights, not the best hours, not the best pay, not the most glamorous shows, uh, not the, the glamorous formats or anything else. Uh, oh, I work at a country station. It's like, Oh really? You know, I don't like country music. Well, you know, but to you, it's the most important thing on, on the, on the face of the planet because, you know, you're getting this chance to go on air and it's so cool to do that. And, uh, Uh, You you provide a service and information, and uh, so that's one thing that uh, I don't know if that's hindered radio or not, Earl, but noticing it here in a top 10 market versus market 100 in Lancaster, PA, where I grew up, it's totally different, and uh, again, I don't know if that's going to hurt radio down the road. Uh, I hope that radio continues. I mean, next, uh, believe it or not, Earl, next year, next uh, November, October or November, I believe. Uh, The first commercial broadcast, uh, KDKA in Pittsburgh, occurred 100 years ago. And uh, I hope radio, you know, somehow has at least another 100 years left in it.
0: And I know you were talking about especially working in the small markets. And one of the people I recently talked to, Paul Butler, who did everything from radio to television, he talks about growing up in Salisbury, doing a lot of the radio there before moving on to Philadelphia and Washington and things like that. And I think not many people understand You have to adjust for the market, and if you're in a small market, you're doing a lot more things than you probably would do in a major market. Some people might just have their show and their show prep and a lot of stuff they do beforehand. Other times, some people are cutting commercials, selling ads, and things like that, and I always think that that tends to get lost sometimes, especially depending on where someone's background is from.
1: You really got to know your audience. I mean, uh, the way ratings are, Uh, The way ratings work and still work to this day is uh, if more people listen to your radio station, the bigger clients are going to want to have their products sold on your station. So that's why you, if you ever hear a radio station playing a Coca-Cola ad or a McDonald's ad, you know that they're doing pretty good in the ratings because they're not going to spend money, throw money after bad. If you hear the smaller markets, the uh, you know the mom and pop stores, and and believe me, I love the mom and pop stores, but you can generally tell you know which stations, and and, and you really got to know your audience. Uh, one of the things that I did in my career was I was a traffic reporter for four different times. I actually did beach traffic where I met Gary Schofield back I think in two thousand and two, along with Alexander Piella, if you uh, know that name, to do the traffic you really need to know what you're talking about. You're looking at a bunch of road names. You need to be able to pronounce the road name correctly. You need to be able to say where in that road, uh, throwing a landmark out that most people know of. Those little things that you don't really think about, you'll get a call, and somebody will tell you that you pronounce it Houston, Delaware. It's not Houston, Delaware.
0: Or Hockessin, and not Hockessin.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but you get my drift where... There's a lot of different things you can do in radio. I think the only thing I really haven't done is sales, and uh, thank goodness. uh, I don't think I could sell a drowning man a glass of water, but who could? Um, But uh, there are some guys out there that uh, are real steak oil salesmen who have very lucrative careers of selling airtime uh, to radio stations. It's just something that uh, never really interests me, but uh, I've also learned through the years now is if you want to try to make any money in radio, you need to get chummy with a sales guy so that they can send you out on a remote that pays sometimes what you would make during the week at a radio station over just a couple of hours. But again, that time frame is usually on a weekend, uh, usually like what, like a ten eight 8 at noon or, or noon to 2 somewhere under a tent with some uh, CDs in a box and a card table. And uh, I guess what, the cat country, we had that wheel that we spun the, the prize wheel, you know. There's just a lot of jobs out there in radio that I think we talked about this already. They don't get the glamour that you think about, but in doing all of these jobs, I could go anywhere. I think I could come back to Salisbury if I got a call and they say, "Hey, you want to come down and do this and this and this?" Have you ever done this? I'll be like, "Yeah, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. I've done that." And that's the part that you know it makes it fun, but it also makes it interesting too that. You can do so many different things if you want to. Calling a tractor pull, calling a a demolition derby, some of the jobs of people uh, needing people to call. We've done high school games together, Wicomico County high school games we did. And again, what I'm getting at is all these different opportunities that you have, be a public address guy at at a minor league game or at a tennis match or something like that. All the components that are needed for this are stuff that uh, you have done in your past since day one in broadcasting.
0: Yeah, and I think I would say that working in radio is akin to working in newspaper because sometimes you end up being a jack of all trades, and sometimes a master of none.
1: Oh, definitely. Um, you you, uh, you you have to have uh, knowledge, of friends. Uh, uh, not to date myself, but the Rolodex. You have to have some contacts. You you have to have friends when you're out broadcasting. You uh, you form. Uh, um, friendships to help each other out. You see a gig that you think somebody might be interested in. You you speak a, a kind word to somebody you know who's the hiring boss. Um, you know, ninety five percent of all of my gigs, and I have had a lot in broadcasting and in acting and and everything else that I do, has been word of mouth. There hasn't been a whole lot of uh, applications being filled out. Uh, we all know that most of the time when we do that, the job's already filled, and we're probably just. Uh, going through the, uh, the, the steps to make things legal in a job search. But it has been beneficial as well that if you are good at what you're doing in radio and there's a need down the road and somebody that you have, uh, are friends with has that need and you can fill the hole, well, that's what it all means to learn as much as you can early on in your career and develop these friendships because you never know who you're going to be working with. I, I ran an internship program at uh, SiriusXM. And I told most of those kids that are now in their 30s, married and having kids and careers and such in radio, and some not in radio, that I said, someday I might be coming to you for a job. And they laughed, and I said, I'm serious. There might be a day where you're going to be like, well, I need this guy. Oh, hey, he can do this, he can do that, he can do that. And, and, and again, that's where uh, it helps to gain as much experience you know, in this crazy career called radio broadcasting.
0: Getting in, I know you talked about working at Sirius and XM and Sirius XM once the merger went through. You had the opportunity to be a part of Cal and Billy Ripken's uh, baseball show?
1: Yeah. That was uh, my, uh, well, what happened was I spent a year in Salisbury and a friend of mine that I had worked at, uh, speaking of uh, connections, uh, a guy named Langdon Town, uh, was working in the traffic department at uh, XM Satellite Radio and uh, they, uh, the Montreal Expos, uh, now the Washington Nationals, were coming to Washington, and XM was putting a baseball channel together, so um, he called me and said, hey, they're looking for uh, update anchors, and one thing led to another, and I got hired and uh, started my career in, uh, in, in, uh, in XM on, uh, I believe it was March 27th of 2005. And March 29th of 2005, I was the producer for Cal and Billy Ripken for Ripken Baseball, which was basically, at the time, a weekend pre-recorded show with Brother Billy, who liked to uh, have an adult beverage while recording, I might say, and the stoic uh, Cal Ripken, who could not have been more um, professional to to, uh, anybody. But to work with these two gentlemen, uh, a future Hall of Famer at the time, and his brother who, of course, had a journeyman's career in baseball, um, was quite a shock. I mean, and uh, I grew up a Pirates fan, so uh, I know these guys were former Orioles, I know you're an Orioles fan, uh, Earl, so I apologize for the Pirates beating the Orioles twice in the World Series, but um, here I'm working for, or with, uh, Cal and Billy, and the one thing that I'll always remember about it, uh, is the word, uh, in radio, when people don't know what to say, they drag out a sentence and say, uh, it's sort of a vocal comma, while they try to think about what to say next. And Cal and Billy could have probably, if you'd taken out all the uhs from both of them while we were recording, could put it on a continuous loop that would probably run for at least two hours. Uh, It was my job to try to tell these guys how to not do that, and um, old habits die hard. I remember uh, Jerry Sandusky, uh, now the the voice of the Baltimore Ravens, uh, coming in to try to help out as well, and got a little bit better with them, Um, and if you do catch them now, you will see that they don't do the um anymore, but at the time, that was the most difficult thing, is to try to tell those guys not to do it and here you are at this 30-something radio producer who's more accustomed to talking on the radio. Now I'm, I'm supposed to help these guys record segments with friends of theirs that are uh, fellow Hall of Famers, and, Paul and you know, Phil Regan, and anybody else coming on that they know to talk about, and uh, it was quite an eye-opening experience, but um, one that i take pride in that i was uh, i was one of the first producers for Ripken baseball and to this day when i see them on uh, if it's billy doing uh, you know MLb network or if i see cal doing the postseason games on tbs or tnt um, i take a little pride in knowing that uh, that uh, you know i have a, a little small piece of, of memory with them uh, working up at their stadium in aberdeen and then at uh, cal's offices in uh, off of falls road in uh, in Baltimore at the time, um, but but uh, something I keep on my resume because it's uh, it is something that I'm very proud of, um, and a lot of people that uh, might be hiring identify these things uh, for again future work. So uh, maybe somewhere down the road, my connection with with and I'm sure if I contacted them. he would billy would probably flip me off and uh give me a noogie and uh you know want to have a beer with him or something and i'd be fine too but um but again what an experience just in my first week in dc not only in dc okay but at this new job at xm satellite radio on the uh, channel uh, mlb home plate xm 175
0: it made me start to think about one of the questions i was going to ask you is when doing your first demo tape What was that process like? And by chance, do you still have it? I did not have mine when I created one in college, I did it all on cassette. And of course, technology being what it was, I don't even remember where it was. So when I applied for the job at iHeartRadio, I basically had to go through audacity, which is where we're recording this interview now, and basically make a demo tape on the fly. And it took me about maybe a good half hour, hour or so just to put everything together because, you know, sometimes it can be perfections, especially when it's something that you want all packaged up and pre recorded and not spontaneous and live. And to do that, it was uh, a bit of a task.
1: And I know you can edit this part out, but are you recording in Audacity right now on two different waves so that I have a clean feed and you have a clean feed?
0: Um, I am just doing it right now on one wave. I got gotcha. you. I'm just
1: curious because I – and and heck, you can even leave this in. I I still play around a lot with Audacity. My uh, I, I'm doing this interview right now in my bedroom, which becomes my studio when I get uh, commercial auditions or um, something that I need for work. I can come in here in my own little studio and uh, do it here. With that being said, to answer your question um, – I don't know if I have my first air check. I remember at an early age when I knew I wanted to get in radio, I wrote a local radio station that I ended up working at, WIOV, I-105, in Lancaster County, which had a Berks County direction, so Berks County, the next county over, where I was born in, in Reading, Pennsylvania. You had this country station, and you had this uh, morning show, and this woman, uh, Casey Allen, who, believe it or not, is still there. I wrote her, and she wrote me back, and... Uh, You know, nothing really ever came of it, but I do remember the process of when I was at Warm 103, I was looking for other jobs. You know, I was there for four and a half years before automation got rid of me. So once I got the job down in about a half a year, I had four years of looking for jobs. And this was like right when the Internet was kind of new. It was the dot-com stage. And you would see these jobs on uh, allaccess.com was one of them where I was always finding jobs or... R&R, there was uh, uh, all these, the billboard, you could go and you would look for these jobs and you would see what they're looking for. They were like, uh, it's either country or it's, uh, you know, easy listening, AC, whatever the the format was of going into the production studio between long songs overnight and I would try to put together an air check with the music from that format. And I'd put it on a tape and we had these little... uh, I think they were like two-minute long tapes. And so they were perfect to put your air check on, put your resume, put it in a jiffy pack, go to the post office. And this was big back then because all that stuff cost money to send the job out, the the jiffy packs and all this stuff. Later on, it was doing it on CDs. But the point was that uh, uh, you were trying to find that job and you were trying to find your niche. And you were hoping, just hoping, that whoever got that, the secretary at the place wouldn't just throw it away in the trash can, that she would actually get it to the person who was, and you hope that they were listening to the air check. They weren't just hiring their buddy and just putting out this ad just to satisfy that, oh, yeah, we, uh, we advertise for the job, but uh, unfortunately we're going in a different direction. You hear that all the time. If you would get a rejection letter back then, Earl, you almost enjoyed getting the rejection letter because you're like, aha, they got it. At least they listened maybe next time. And there were places where I repeatedly sent stuff to and sent stuff to. I'm sure I probably have an air check from way, way back. But the, uh, the very first one, I couldn't tell you. And if I heard it, I would probably <laughs> hope that nobody else would get a chance to listen to it either. Not that I'm any better now, probably, or sound any better than I did when I first started. But I'm sure I sounded like that that tough 40 guy who makes his voice sound like this instead of just talking normal like I am right now.
0: I actually was going to get into that subject about especially one of the things that I think people tend to not really notice or get lost on when it comes to on-the-air stuff is the need for enunciation and good breathing when it comes to doing stuff on the air. I know that when you're trying to do something live over the air – Sometimes, depending on what your normal talking voice would be like, you can tend to rush a little or you keep going on and on and then you're running out of breath and you're just trying to pick it up where the gas for air isn't really that noticeable. And I always think that's something that maybe isn't really taught that much. I know that I still feel like enunciating is maybe one of my Achilles heels in addition to trying to find the perfect way to breathe because even when I'm recording stuff, I always look – back on the timeline, especially even Audacity or Adobe Audition, and I can see the little thing for the gasp of air, and it can irritate me to no end sometimes.
1: <laughs> it drives my wife crazy. There's a friend of mine that works with me. I, I won't say who it is, but he's got the, and, uh, and you hear the, you know, all the time. But, you know, to, to his defense and mine, because um, I sometimes when I'm doing a commercial, I'll see them too in the wave, is what we refer to it as when you're doing the production. In certain formats, you need to get something done in a minute. And to get it done in a minute, you might have to go in there and cut those breaths out so that you have a full minute. Some though you got to leave in so you don't sound like this when you're, you hear the commercial, and it's choppy, and it doesn't flow right. So it is it is an art form, and the current format where I'm at now, I have no more than two minutes to tell you everything that I possibly can about the local sports and hopefully national if it's a big story and get out in time. And sometimes – I worked today. I did the midday shift at, at the radio station, and the uh, Mueller case was on all day. Well, when that's going on, they're talking more about that. That's probably a little bit more important than me talking about game one of a day-night doubleheader between the Nats and the Rockies. But I look up at the clock, and it says 15. I'm supposed to go on at 15 or 45. I look up, and they're coming to me at 15 and 30 seconds. Well, my two minutes now is a minute and a half. Got to adjust on the fly. How do I get it in? How do I make it sound where I'm not rushing? How do I convey all the information I need? This is all adjusting on the fly. So it makes it, at times, very difficult to get all of that information out and stay on time. And again, as I reiterate, almost this whole episode we've been talking about this, Earl, is the experience of the past uh, will always come back to help you in the future. You know, you'll make a mistake, and you'll say, I'm never doing that again. Or you do make an error, and it sticks out because the repercussions were a little bit more severe than you knew or figured. Uh, So you're kind of like, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, But you also, again, like I said, you just have to kind of look, and it's like, okay, I'm looking up. I'm going to run out of time. Don't go to that next story. It's okay. I can get it the next time. Just close out nicely. Maybe give the anchor a couple of extra seconds to tease the next element coming up and stay on the clock. The music clock, uh, radio clock, news clock, you have to hit certain times. Our moneymaker is uh, is our traffic on the 8s or when it breaks. If there's something going out on the roads, the traffic department is the one that people turn to our station to learn. I give the anchors a couple of minutes to catch their breath and get ready for the next uh, element. That's what I tell people. But I also... When I go on the air, I know that I'm trying to tell the listener what they need to know. I'm not a homer. Uh, I don't root for any of the local teams because I'm not a fan. I have become less of a sports team fan the older I get because uh, it kind of gets in the way of the broadcast. Uh, Unless you're hired by the team, that's totally different. I mean, uh, you know, John Sterling for the Yankees works for the Yankees. He's going to get crazy and talk all Yankees and, you know, be a homer. I do somewhat of that for Salisbury football, but when I'm talking on the air at WTOP, we're a transient city where we have a lot of Chicago fans, Colorado fans, everywhere, and oil fans. So it takes – not everybody can do it. I always say that anybody can do it. It takes a, a little art to be able to make it work. I mean, if I wasn't good at doing this, I probably wouldn't be able to get jobs to keep me in this industry. So you got to think that you're probably doing a couple of things right, or you wouldn't be doing it. You know, I always joke when I get to work, they're like, "Hey, you know, you're you're back," and I'm like, "Well, hey, the, my ID let me in the building. As long as it lets me in the building, and I get a text from my boss asking me to work X and X date, um, I know I'm doing the job." Uh, so once again, it comes back to the experience, uh, not popping your peas, not uh, making the gasp the. Uh, the, the air, you hear the air and the breath um, talking across the microphone. I mean, right now, I'm wearing a pair of Sennheiser headphones with a, a microphone on the left, and I have a little uh, windscreen on it just so I don't pop my peas. But I also, every time I see a P, I try to not pronounce it as abruptly to pop because when you go to record, you'll hear a pop in your record. So, uh, so again, uh, I think just experience, Earl, you've seen it by doing production, hearing other people, seeing it on the wave. Uh, you see it, you try to avoid it, and that's what makes you successful.
0: One thing that I was going to ask you, I guess aside from podcast and streaming music, what do you think has really <clears throat> been one of the biggest... Um, I guess one of the biggest things that may have dug into radio's foothold of music, would you say something like MTV? Would you say Napster at one time in the early in the late 90s, early 2000s? Would you even say, oh, there's a few other things that have just lost the top of my head, but like streaming iPods and things like that. Which one of those things maybe dug into radio's foothold?
1: I think, I think podcasts are now pretty big. I know everybody wants one. You know, I mean, we're doing one. And, and by the way, this is the first one I've done. And so far, it's been a very uh, interesting and smooth process. So uh, I thank you for that. Everybody always, always say to me, hey, why don't you do a podcast? And as you well know, it's not easy to prepare, um, to be fresh, to... Uh, you know, say, uh, stick to a plan. I know we agreed to doing this and uh, on this date to do it at this time, and we had a little technical difficulties, but it worked out, and I'm glad it worked out. But hey, if something happened to me or yourself and you couldn't do it, and somebody's expecting you to have this podcast, then there's a little bit of pressure. Then maybe, then maybe it's not as fun, you know, and I, I've been trying to personally find something that I could go on, and if I wanted to go on for 10 minutes with my wife one time, or call up a, a buddy like yourself or or somebody that I used to work with long ago and to catch up with them and say where are they now or whatever I just have not been able to come up with a subject that I could do passionately to deliver it to make sure that it would be something that somebody wanted to listen to and I'll be quite honest I, uh, I would want to make money because your time especially in broadcasting um, is so precious um and, and I say that with when you come on and you wanted to talk to me, you prepared a list. You have to show prep. The art of show prep is uh, almost non existent in radio anymore. And it's one thing that I try to do like I did last night to prepare for my show today. I had basically four pages of script to talk anything from the Tour de France to the Washington Castles tennis that are playing tonight to the WNBA's Mystics who played earlier today. The doubleheader for the Nats and the Rockies, the O's and the Diamondbacks earlier today from Arizona. Of all that stuff going on, I wasn't able to touch base on Tour de France or touch base on uh, the Castles as much as I wanted to, or or DC United's game tonight over at Audi Field. But I, I'm prepared that just in case I were to look up and I would get that stretch things out. And I've already talked about what I have. There I go. I have more information to talk to about what's going on with the Skins. Yeah, they're reporting for training camp today in Richmond. Yeah, but, but what happened to Mason Foster? and wh- Where's Trent Williams? And when is Jay Gruden going to speak, the head coach? I have all this information that nine times out of ten I don't need. But there's going to be that one time, Earl, and you've been there, where you need something and it's not there, and that panic will tell you never to do it again, and that's why I over-prepare and and do that as much as possible so um once again uh, that goes hand in hand with learning from past mistakes and uh i gotta admit i hope that i didn't uh stray off too far off subject with that answer
0: (laughs) no not at all no i always just think especially and just being like in part of that wave of Being alive, especially during the mid to late 80s when MTV and to a extent VH1 and BET were big, that takes things away from the radio. And then being part of the Napster iPod now streaming generation, it's interesting to see. I'll admit, I hadn't really listened to the radio, especially living in northern Delaware where it's Philly sports talk. I'm an Orioles, Redskins, Wizards fan. I don't really care about a lot of the topic, but then my iPod Classic broke and I've had nothing else to listen to because normally (laughs) I would listen to that all the way up and all the way back and I would continue just something to do. I've been listening to, I guess, saying terrestrial radio a little more, especially I'll listen to the news talk stations to know about the traffic, especially when I have to drive from Delaware (coughs) to New Jersey. And you gotta know what's going on, especially early in the morning, and sometimes in the afternoon, whether to avoid going down one or going down ninety-five and things like that. And I think those are very important sometimes. Oh,
1: I mean, listening to the radio, I, uh, I I I listen all the time. It it it, uh, it it used to drive my wife crazy. I'd have a. A radio in the kitchen I'd have on. I'd have another one on in the uh, bedroom. I'd have the TV on. I'd have uh, the streaming going on the computer. And I'd go from room to room. And I owe that to my grandfather, who would do the same thing that I was told later on. it's like, oh, he did the same thing. And he's the one that actually made me, a, uh, uh, growing up at the time, a Steelers and a Pirates fan. Him being, of course, born in Pittsburgh. So that's why being born closer to Philly, where I was, but half the family was from Pittsburgh, At the time when I was growing up, the Pittsburgh teams were far more successful than the Philadelphia teams. Uh, So I kind of lucked out in that regard. But I find that you can get a lot of information on a radio because you can do things around the house. You can do certain things. You don't have to stay there and watch what's going on, and then you can't get anything done. It's hard to multitask. But if you have the radio on, whether it be in your car or what have you, Sometimes just for background, just for something so it's not so godly quiet, you know, or or you're trying to drown something out, you know. I find listening to anything from NPR to the station I'm on to the sports stations around the area here so I can get more information. I try to read as much as I can, but I find I get more information by listening to the radio it, it just seems to um, sink in a lot more than reading for me. So again, with the, the podcast, I think, uh, to answer your question, I think that's the biggest thing right now. I also, though, don't know how long it's going to be around. What's the next thing in radio? What's the next thing that's going to try to grab us? That's what I'm interested in because I know that with technology, the current formats, younger people just aren't listening to the radio. They're not listening to AM radio. Uh, They're not listening to FM radio, they're either streaming uh, and right now listening to a podcast, but what's next? What's down the road? And what do you and I have to do to stay in the game? What do we have to do to change what we have going on to form into what's, uh, what's coming up down the road? So I'm looking forward to it, Earl. I really am.
0: And the one thing I think of, especially a podcast, it can be some, it's not like it's a big name person. You're not, you know, you have the Joe Rogans and you have some of those other celebrities doing their podcasts, but sometimes you have some unheralded people who end up just finding a way to blow up just because they fit a niche. They fill an audience and there's an audience who wants to listen to them and talk about certain things. Sometimes it's very inane and sometimes it's very informative.
1: I have a uh, listener uh, to WTOP, uh, he goes by Baseball Bruce. He's a retired uh, engineer from uh, – worked at Amtrak. Uh, I believe he's from Philadelphia. Uh, lives in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland now. He calls all the time, and he uh, all the information he throws at me is either in his brain, in his encyclopedias. He reads papers and everything else. No Internet. Um, no fancy cable package, and can tell me things that um, – You know, only a person that does a lot of reading would be able to tell me. He has told me that we should do a a podcast because he mixes politics and sports into our quick conversations. And he's a good listener. He's so so good of a listener, Earl. He'll tell me how long I have until I have to go on the air, which is also good because you look up and sometimes when you need to be on the air – you look up and you're like, you got to run into the studio because you were either reading or on the phone. But Bruce would be that niche that um, if I were able to pull it off and to have a uh, you know a baseball Bruce podcast where we talk about the uh, you know uh, Pelosi not wanting to impeach the, the president of the United States and wait for the election to come up. To worm that into Max Scherzer coming off the injured list tomorrow to pitch the finale against the Rockies, he would be able to weave that, you know, eloquently enough to keep your interest. He's got a great voice. He has these great stories, and like I said before, our conversations vary, so the podcast could vary. So I think that there's that there's that niche that 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 uh, maybe that's what you want to do. But the other thing is to. It seems that everybody nowadays, their attention span is non-existent. If you don't catch people within the first uh, few seconds, you're going to lose them. They're going to change the dial. Those are things that I just think right now, uh, not only radio, but television doing the same thing, is holding the interests of the consumer. And uh, I don't know how radio is going to form to make that happen, but I think radio has a leg up because you could still do... Like I said before, other things while you're still listening to the radio, Uh, especially, like I said, if it's traffic and you're packing, you can do two things at the same time instead of stopping to have to watch and see a map. You can picture the map because the reporter is telling you where it is. So I think that answers your question a little bit that I strongly think podcasts are now but I really don't know what's going to happen around the bend. And, I, and as I reiterated before, I'm, I'm very interested to see where it's going to go.
0: One of the things that I know that you just started doing was getting into acting. How did you get the acting bug? And what is an audition like going into it? And is it just on screen or is it also voice acting as well?
1: Uh, I've been a voice actor ever since I've done commercials either for the station or uh, trying to do them on my own and uh, hope somebody pays me uh, a few bucks to do this stuff. The acting started in grade school with um, doing the plays that we all do. The acting in high school was non-existent. I wasn't really into it, but it resurfaced when I did the Dutch Apple Dinner Theater in Lancaster, Pennsylvania when I was working at War 103. They had a production of Grease where they wanted a local disc jockey to play the part of Vince Fontaine, the disc jockey in Greece, where you were actually out on stage singing and had lines and everything, and you did it for a week. And so uh, I and a few other vocal personalities did so, and uh, I kind of liked it, thought it was cool. Fast forward to my arrival at WTOP in... April of 2013, we are a union shop. We are the Screen Actors Guild uh, after a SAG after shop. So I had to join the union in order to work at this uh, radio station, and I always wanted to join it. So thought, okay, I'll do it. Cool, I get to join. They were all like, "Wow, you know, nobody ever wants to join this thing because you have to pay dues." But part of paying those dues, you get these emails, and they show you a need for background work for a movie coming up. Uh, At the time, it was Veep. uh, House of Cards were the two. And when I wasn't doing sports reporting to supplement my income as well, and being in the union, they need so many union people per show, per day that they shoot. And so I could get a full day's pay by being on set for maybe just three hours or make some pretty good money being on set for 12-plus hours. Plus they feed you. You get to work with movie stars. You get to network with other people that are uh, in the arts, which is, uh, again, another, like I talked about, just making those connections. And basically, if I was available and they needed my services, I was uh, on a movie set. And for the most part, it was just background. I did have a scene with uh, a couple of characters on Veep that, uh, as they say, or on the cutting room floor. I never made the episode, but the experience was uh, something I'll never forget. And uh, from there, I just basically got a kick out of it. And there's a movie coming out in September with the actor who played uh, Black Panther. It's called 21 Bridges. I play the mayor in this movie. Uh, I have no lines. I'm, I'm at a funeral in a church, and then I'm outside of the church, and that's good. I'm shooting a sitcom right now called Uproar in DC, where I'm the lead, where I have to memorize up to six scenes per episode. And my memorization skills are terrible. But once you get a little passion involved with it, figure out the character, practice and practice, it becomes much easier. And now um, I'll do anything from background to if you have a part with lines, okay, I can read a teleprompter. I've learned to do that. You know, when we were doing those remotes back at uh, Cat Country and Max 92.5, you're dealing with the public, so you're comfortable dealing with people. So, again, all the experience of radio, and I've done a little bit of TV, weather channel, and a local sports uh, channel over here, Toyota Sports Talk on ABC7 and uh, 24-7 Channel 8 here in the D.C. area. Um, That experience just kind of has helped me get – Commercial gigs, voiceover, um, whatever a casting agency would need. Hand model. They just need somebody in the background. They don't really need to see your face. Uh, I think I threw my hat into this next uh, zombie movie coming out that they're going to be filming in central Virginia. Um, would like to be able to uh, like put the makeup on and look uh, as hideous as possible and get paid to do so. So the acting bug bit pretty early but it took a long time for it to blossom and only doing this for six years the process is pretty easy send a picture resume that you have of any prior work that might be related um you get your measurements you put that down as well because some of the some of the work involves costumes and some of the costumes you have to fit into the costume it's just the way it is so they don't care if you're the perfect person for it but you're too short you're too stout uh, or whatever um But um, and to answer your question about the audition, the sitcom that I'm doing, I went in for a a role to play a mailman, and uh, I was terrible. I worked at the radio station all day. Uh, It was my birthday last year. I was tired. I was ill-prepared, and I went in, and I thought, oh, my God, that was the worst audition I've ever done. And then I got an email saying that uh, I didn't get the part of the mailman, but they would want to use me for background. So I was like, okay, great. So I, we went to a, a, a meeting before the shoot, and uh, the lead pulled out, and I was uh, spotted in the crowd being myself, and the casting director came over and asked me to read for him the, the main part, and, uh, and I got the main part. So I would recommend, just like when the lottery gets to be a, a big jackpot, the only way you're going to win is by buying a ticket – It's the same thing with acting. You're not going to get it. They're not going to come to your door and knock on your door if you aren't willing to put yourself out there in an audition. And uh, it's gotten pretty fun. My my wife, if they need me to self tape, you know, she'll film me, and I'll try to memorize the lines and send it down. And I actually did a commercial because of her helping me out. So I actually just got the check today, and I just put it in the bank before we did this podcast. And so it's been lucrative, which has been very cool, but it's also the contacts and the people that I've met through there. Again, like I'm reiterating throughout this entire podcast, is it's the experience that you build and use. And this stuff makes great for filler when you're doing a college football game. I'm sure a lot of what I've done has already been on the air last year and a little bit more of it will come out not bragging but just bringing up past experiences that I hope that the crowd out there can kind of relate to so uh, it's all kind of helped and it's a uh, It's a a lot of fun trying to spot yourself in an episode of Homeland or Oprah Winfrey's uh, movie that she shot up in Baltimore um, or Wonder Woman 2, which I helped shoot last July right here in Alexandria. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, the great thing is, Earl, anybody can do it.
0: Yeah, definitely sounds like... uh Yeah, anybody can do it. It's just if you're, I guess, if you have the desire. You always hear about those people who are serving, especially in LA, serving and working on these other things while trying to get acting gigs. And I think that is a very interesting. And I think your story, of course, is very positive and a good way to show that definitely possible. Sometimes it's a little circumstance. Sometimes you just never know.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, you got to put yourself out there. It is a lot of fun. I was uh, working with, you know, whatever your views of of Kevin Spacey, I understand that. But uh, acting-wise, to be a stand-in and work alongside of him for upwards of 12 hours a day, you get paid for it a little bit more when you're a stand-in. A stand-in basically uh, uh, is the uh, second team that comes in and stands where the actors are going to stand so that the cameraman and the directors and the producers can visualize what the scene is going to look like with actors who kind of look like the person who is actually the actor. But by working with uh, Robin Wright and uh, all those actors, um, Julia Louis Dreyfus, all of them, by just having that time being up close and right next to them and everything else, you sometimes pinch yourself kind of like, wow, I can't believe that I'm doing half the stuff that I do. And where I do it, you know, anywhere from uh, Philadelphia down to Richmond and uh, from uh, Ocean City uh, out to uh, anywhere in this neck of the woods um, uh, in northern Virginia. I've been able to to find enough work over the last four years to build uh, a lot of lifetime memories that, again, have uh, helped me in my day to day life.
0: So, Jay, as we start wrapping this up, what are some ways that people can reach out to you and connect with you? Not sure how big you are on the social media in addition to Twitter and things like that.
1: Well, for one, LinkedIn is, uh, it's a funny thing with LinkedIn. I'm sure that you've probably, if you're not on it, uh, are you a LinkedIn member? Uh, Yes, I am. Okay. Well, you know, the one thing with LinkedIn that you always do is whoever uh, offers to be included into your group, you basically accept them, right? I look at it this way. If they're taking the time to want me into their little circle, I'm jumping in. Am I going to be your best friend on there? Probably not. And I've never really gotten anything positive out of being a member of LinkedIn. But I also feel like if I'm not in there, I'm missing out on something. That being said, I'm on LinkedIn. Facebook is the same way as well. And it's how I keep in contact with you and uh, several family members and, and uh, friends from uh, Pennsylvania, high school, and everything else. So Facebook, uh, Twitter, J Brooks W T O P at J. B-R-O-O-K-S-W-T-O-P on Twitter, uh, where I basically try to inform is whenever I'm on the air, I tweet from there. And if uh, somebody tweets to me, I try to reply back to them as soon as possible. I just got into Instagram. Um, I don't really, to be honest with you, I've gone on there and as I'm talking with you, I'm kind of fiddling around to try to find out what my Instagram nickname is. Um, I just haven't had any time to go on. It's not like I'm not interested in it, but I did this endorsement. Uh, I had LASIK surgery in uh, January, and uh, part of the, the gig was I go and I tweet. I go on Facebook and uh, talk about my experience with my vision, and then I do a commercial for the radio station. And one of the things what they wanted was they wanted me to... Uh, open up a Instagram account, which I did. So, um, and I'm I'm kind of filibustering right now as I try to find out what my name is for this. Um, but it's J John Johnny fourteen. So J J O H N J O H N N Y fourteen, and uh, which I'll remind you with how I got my air name, Earl, which we talked about before we started the podcast. When I first got into radio, I used my real name, John Easterbrook, and it was it's a rather unique name. I got to Warm 103 in January of 1997, and there were already three other Johns on the air, and my program director uh, told me that uh, I need to come up with an air name. Now, I had always dreaded the dreaded air name, the... Uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the these, these names you hear all the time, these Paul Allen or, uh, you know, Casey Gold, or all these names that you heard and you're just like, that can't be their real name. Well, I was thinking, why don't I be John Summers? I mean, that, that's probably the lamest possible air name you can have. But I thought, why don't I go with John Summers? So at the time I was living in an apartment in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, And my landlord, it was a hairdresser. The hairdresser was on the first floor, and uh, my apartment was on the second floor. And uh, uh, her name's Ann Lead, and uh, Allure Salons in Lancaster. I'll give a little shout-out if you never need your hair done. Um, She said, well, why don't you take Jay from John, and last name's Easterbrook. Why not take Brook? Jay Brooks, two syllables. What do you think about that? Doesn't sound like it's fake or made up, and I'm like, you know what? I like it. So I went in the next day and I told my boss, how about we go with Jay Brooks? She's like, oh, I like it. Jay, like J-A-Y. And I was like, no. It's going to be J period Brooks. The J stands for John. And that to distinguish me a little bit differently than just another Jay Brooks. And for union reasons, um, that air name, you know, that my professional name, Uh, was not used, so I was able to use that professional name in the union, which was cool, Um, and to this day, if you call me John, I will answer. If you call me Jay, I may not answer right away. Uh, If I hear the word John, I look, because it's my given name, Um, but it's also, I'm beyond the point now of going back to my real name. More people professionally know me as Jay Brooks, but all my checks and my ID and all my billing and everything else that comes to me has my real name. So, um, so again, it's a, it wasn't something that I, 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 I wanted, but I had to do it at the time. And it's something that, uh, heck, almost 20 years later, I'm still going by Jay Brooks. So, like I said before, it's still working. Why change it now?
0: Well, John, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast. And I do look forward to having you back and talking a little more, especially about some of the inner workings, I guess, of definitely doing play-by-play and things like that.
1: Definitely, Earl. please. Let's do it again. Maybe I can tell you a little bit more about what's going on with Salisbury University football, which is, believe it or not, September 6th, the season opener up in Reading, Pennsylvania. How ironic in my uh, the town I was born in against the Albright Lions at uh, 6 o'clock on sports.net If you can, please tune in. There's always plenty of room. If you're local in the Delmarva Peninsula, 94.9 KHI, not only a great radio station, but to carry our broadcasts of... Uh, Salisbury University football. To have college football on the Eastern Shore, there's not a lot of it. It's just Wesley with uh, Sean Green, uh, northern part of Delaware, and uh, probably yours truly to, to the south. So there's not a whole lot of options. So if you can, please support local sports broadcasting if you can.
0: And that was my interview with John Easterbrook, and I hope you really enjoyed it. I look forward to having him on the show in the near future. If you know anyone who might find this episode of interest, please don't forget to share. Next time, my guest will be Dante Finney, who will be making his third appearance on the show. Dante will discuss what it's like being the father of a newborn daughter for the first time, his thoughts on the keto diet, and we'll also get back into some word association as well. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Stitcher Radio, and wherever else podcasts are heard. Until next time. This is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at thesportsrefuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at thesportsrefuge sports blog. Thank you for listening.